0: Hey everyone, I'm Serena.
1: And I'm Tina, and we are the Mental Health Mamas.
0: Welcome to No Need to Explain. We are so glad you're here.
1: First, as always, a quick disclaimer.
0: We come to you not as mental health professionals or experts in the field, but rather as the parents of kids who struggle with their emotional health.
1: If you or someone you love is experiencing a mental health crisis, please seek professional support. You'll find a variety of resources in our show notes and on our website, no need to explain
0: So I believe that I've shared on the podcast before that I moved around a lot growing up. And uh, for anybody who's moved, which I think is most people, uh, moving is not easy, even when ultimately it's a positive experience. My family moved from Northern Virginia to Londonderry, New Hampshire, right before I started high school. And Londonderry is a pretty small town, a small New England town, and one in which many of the kids have known each other since kindergarten and even before, um, which makes it extra hard to be the new kid. Mm I recently reconnected with a friend from high school and learned for the first time actually that she was also the new kid at about the same time. So I'm really excited to introduce our guest to you today as a friend from maybe a few years ago. um, (laughs) I will let Tina do the formal introductions, but first I just want to say, Elisa, welcome to our podcast.
2: Thank you for having me on. It's great to reconnect, Serena.
1: We are so glad you can join us today. Uh, Elisa Batista has worked in a number of different roles in politics as an activist, writer, and a public figure. Currently, she works for the women's rights organization Ultraviolet as a campaign director, where she conceives and implements campaigns to end violence against women, um, among other roles. She's a mom to two teenagers and is especially passionate about elevating the voices of women of color who struggle with mental illness and addiction.
0: So, Elisa, before we really dive in here, I wonder if you might share a little bit about what it was like to be the new kid in Londonderry, New Hampshire.
2: Oh, my God. That was an experience (laughs) that shaped who I am to this day. Mm. Um, So I largely grew up in a working class Haitian neighborhood in North Miami. Uh, Think brightly colored cinder block homes, tropical fruit trees that our fathers planted from the old country and Creole, or in my case, um, Spanish Catholic mass. Our pastor was Haitian and is actually back home in Haiti now. My father is Cuban from the East Coast side of the island facing Haiti, and my mother is Puerto Rican. In 1991, when I was 14, my father, who worked in manufacturing, got a job in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, He ended up renting a townhouse in Londonderry so that we could attend the public schools there. It was definitely culture shock. Mm. And mm. I do remember feeling like I had to be perfect to fit in. So
1: mm. tell us a little bit, that's a little bit about your personal life. Tell us a little bit of the work that you do in your professional life.
2: I'm a trained journalist. And my first job out of college was at re- as a reporter at Wired News in San Francisco. I was there for about three and a half years. Then I had my son, Ari. And based on the price of childcare in the Bay Area and the uncertain and long hours of working in a newsroom, I reinvented myself as a political organizer. I did this by first starting a mommy blog with a few friends called Mother Talkers. Uh, It ended up becoming a wildly popular progressive blog that was voted by Ms. Magazine, a favorite mommy blog. It was recognized mm-hmm. with numerous awards, including by Latinos and in tech innovation and social media. Uh, what, made, what set it apart from other blogs was that it had a function called Diaries, and it allowed anyone to blog on our website. Um, it was through that blog that I got the attention of a startup political organization called Moms Rising, I eventually became a full time campaign director for them, where I helped start their immigrant rights campaign and their bilingual community, Mamas con Poder, or it means Moms with Power in Spanish. Um, I'm passionate about empowering others to live their best lives, and that includes making structural changes in our society, in our country, so that all of us, including mothers, caregivers, immigrants, survivors of sexual abuse and violence, women of color, we can all show up as our full authentic selves and thrive
0: that is awesome. I love that. So, we're going to we are going to shift gears here just a little bit and uh, go back to the personal part of things and talk about your personal connection with mental illness and addiction. And as we've shared on the podcast before, we've shared some statistics in the past about how many of us are affected, and I don't have updated statistics around COVID. I'm guessing those are still in the works, but what we do know is that one in 5 adults struggles with a diagnosable mental health condition. In any given year. And that's the same for youth. It's a one in five and one in four adults has or has had an addiction of some sort. So this means that if it's not us personally, then it's someone close to us that struggles. So as we always say, this is all of us. So Elisa, Mm -hmm. tell us about your experience.
2: Well, I'm 44 now and I have learned a lot, especially in the last six years, Um, While I and my family of origin suffered from various undiagnosed and diagnosed mental illnesses like mood disorders and alcoholism, I didn't learn about them until I was in couples counseling back in 2015, trying to save a 20-year relationship. Our genius, genius marriage counselor pointed out to me that I exhibited symptoms of an adult child of alcoholic and codependent parents, uh, such as perfectionism, denial, people pleasing and shame. I I didn't believe her because my parents (laughs) could hold down jobs and raise a family. For me, an alcoholic was someone who couldn't do those things and lived in the Mm -hmm. streets. I didn't realize that there were various degrees of the disease and that you could be affected even if you didn't drink. Anyways, um, this genius uh, counselor had me read a book by Dr. Robert Ackerson that was called Perfect Daughters, the Adult Daughters of Alcoholics. And it was like reading my autobiography, (laughs) Everything mm-hmm. I had ever felt or done, my behavioral patterns and personality, it was all in this book. Mm. And from then on, I, I went through the stages of grief, coming to terms with the disease, which was a shock to my perfectionist tendencies and the denial that comes with the disease and shame. Um, mm. I was a regular wine, red wine drinker. Um who loved to go up to Napa and Sonoma near where I live here in California um, for wine tastings. And I would always bring out the bottles when people would visit me. Um, At the same time, I've had a mood disorder called PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, which I had refused to do anything about even though it had impacted my relationships. Um, PMDD, uh, basically the week before my period, um, I'd get anxious, really depressed and weepy and very moody. Um, Then the week of my period, the physical symptoms were horrible. I mean, this was not just menstrual cramps. Um, These were really painful periods that I could feel to my core that made me vomit. Um, My periods (laughs) looked like a murder scene.
0: Mm -hmm. And,
2: um, and again, rather than seek help, I'd simply medicate with wine, which as it turns out is the worst thing you can do because alcohol is a depressant. So five Mm -hmm. years later, after a divorce or what I'm calling my rock bottom, I finally stuck with Alan on meetings. It's a support network for family members of alcoholics. I uh, quit drinking altogether and sought help for the PMDD. Um, Not only do I exercise every single day and for the most part, eat very healthy. um, I take two forms of birth control an IUD um, with low dose hormones and an oral birth control and two antidepressants um, to keep the symptoms in check. And honestly, I feel great now. I, mm. My one regret, and I mean, I look forward, but my one regret is I was so stubborn and did it mm-hmm. years ago.
0: Yeah, so so I'm gonna actually, uh, I appreciate all uh, that you shared there, and and the normalization of taking medication because it's not always um, something that people are comfortable sharing, right? Um, but I I wanted to back up just a moment here and talk for a moment about the. The drinking culture. Right. The um, and I certainly heard even more of this, um, you know, coming up around covid with, you know, parents home all day. And in some ways, there's a kind of a glorification of, you know, the day drinking. Right. And um, so can you tell me, uh, you know, um, what it was like for you, like as a young mom um, and how that, you know, how you kind of became part of that culture?
2: I agree. Um, I would say that quitting drinking, and I wasn't that heavy of a drinker, but still a regular mm-hmm. drinker, um, was really hard. Um, it not only meant stop buying the alcohol, stop drinking mm-hmm. it, it also meant changing my environment drinking Mm -hmm. friends. I I mean, I raised my kids, I would have these dinner parties in which we'd be playing um, card games and drinking down margaritas and wine. And um, this was how we socialized and were Mm -hmm. intimate with one another. And, um, letting all of that go, I even had to take, even if it was temporary breaks from drinking mom friends, because Mm -hmm. it was like, it was such a hard habit, uh, to break. We get together, we play cards and of course alcohol is involved. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can imagine now during a pandemic, why, um, that was a lifestyle that was really difficult to leave mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm proud of myself. I actually stayed dry the entire pandemic. Even mm-hmm. Though at the very beginning, like many people, I definitely wanted to calm down and calm the nerves with a glass mm-hmm. of wine. And I just didn't because the way I lived before was not, it, it didn't feel right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, we're on the topic of, you know, culture. Let's talk a little bit, if you would, about um, you have said you're Latina. And so I'm curious about how mental health is viewed in, in that culture.
2: Oh, my goodness. With uh, deep shame and denial. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it is exacerbated in immigrant um, people of color and other marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. If you think about our larger country and society, it is very cutthroat, deeply individualistic. It's like, go out, make money, um, however possible. But one thing I have learned about this process is that it's 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 not necessarily the most uh humanizing system like mm-hmm. it is incredibly racist ableist perfectionist and um deeply dehumanizing um you know if you have uh, you know barriers because of discrimination you're treated like you're just lucky to be here mm-hmm. you know th- mm-hmm. you shouldn't have a problem And uh, the thing is, is that, um, you know, little, there is a lot of stigma around mental illness Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, substance abuse. I want to give you an example. Um, One of the things that really rattles me to my core Mm -hmm. is the expectation that immigrants, especially if you do not have documentation, have to be perfect. Like if Mm. you get a DUI, you should be kicked out Mm -hmm. of the country. And the reality is lots of white Americans get DUIs Mm -hmm. and suffer from alcoholism. And why wouldn't um, people from other communities also have these issues? But somehow we have to hide it and we have to um, behave perfectly in every way so that we can be deemed Americans, too
1: hmm I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. I think that immigrant pressure is a lot, right? Um, it, you, you, that lucky to be here mm-hmm. thing, right? It is, it is a lot. And I am from a family that immigrated a long, long time ago. And I, I think that was part of that culture, right? Is you are lucky to be here and, and you are held a higher standard in that doesn't seem Right.
2: Yes. I feel, um, now I've learned to show a little more compassion to myself and especially my parents. Right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I know for the longest time, I felt like I had to work 10 times harder than everyone Mm -hmm. around me to prove that I belonged there. And, um, I can only imagine it was much worse for my parents who had additional pressures like learning mm-hmm. English and uh feeding a family on working class jobs without right. you know that uh, and they didn't have college degrees and um I I just can only imagine how much pressure that was. So of course, you know, um talking about or drawing attention to any less than perfect or ideal circumstances um, was was just not wanted.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I wonder if you could uh, talk about that in terms of Londonderry. If, I, I imagine there are people out there who maybe don't have a clear view of what that might look like.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I, again, I moved from a largely black and brown community Um, that spoke other languages, multiple languages, Mm -hmm. um, to Londonderry, New Hampshire, which was at the time, we were one of three Puerto Rican families, at least in the school Mm -hmm. system. And I just found that the very few visible people of color, including my siblings, were all put in remedial classes and mm. I was maybe one of two, max three uh, women of color in my honors track. And I can att- mm-hmm. I can tell you, I put so much pressure on myself. I was up mm. till 11, midnight, you know, doing homework. Um, I, I really suffered in silence. I, I felt like I couldn't tell a soul about this because it was mm. like a sign of weakness Um, Now in my political work, I come across other people of color who similarly um, grew up and there's a lot of deep, like internalized prejudices and imposter syndrome. And um, it's taken many years of of work to undo that. And I would say until now, did I finally recognize, you know what? I always deserved to be there. I was just as smart and and um, competent as other folks. Um, but again, and I didn't have the vocabulary or the insights that I have today to recognize that this was part of a larger structural issue, mm-hmm. that it was purposely, you know, systems are set up so that people of color know, quote, their place
0: yeah.
2: and are meant, you know, are, are made to feel this way. hmm
0: So knowing that one of the goals of this podcast is to normalize the conversations around mental health for everyone, um, we're, we're curious what your thoughts might be on how we might move a little closer to that normalization. How do we push back against generations of stigma?
2: Oh boy! <laughs> I, I would say it starts with awareness—is breaking through the denial and the stigma. And I would say it took me at least six years of work. And this was going to support group meetings, uh, therapy. Um, I, I even have an Al-Anon sponsor that I talk to. Mm-hmm. Reading mm-hmm. so many books, like Perfect Daughters, um, mm-hmm. to really undo what is. In intergenerational, you know, drama, um, trauma. And, yeah. and then from then on, and I'm still working on this is extending it. What I've learned to my kids and the people who live with us, normalizing conversations at the kitchen table. Um, mm-hmm. I regularly, regularly broach the topic, um, to my kids of being able to make mistakes um, like I said, mm. part of this disease was um, feeling like I had to be perfect and the wall of perfectionism and vulnerability and shame are bad and and and, and don't show any weakness. And mm-hmm. now I tell my kids the opposite, that making mistakes is healthy. Um, perfectionism is not. And I feel that that is an example of of a teaching to help disrupt the stigma and trauma that's been passed from one generation to the next.
1: Yeah, I love that. Just regular conversations. Mm-hmm. We, we, we all don't have to be activists, but we all can do what we can do around our kitchen that's table, right? right? Um, yeah. So that's awesome. We always like to ask our guests uh, about their self-care or the things that they do for a kind of renewal. You are clearly a super busy person with two teenagers at home and a full-time career. So what does that self-care look like for you, Lisa?
2: Well, it is an all day intentional practice every day. I seek Mm -hmm. joy and gratitude in everything that I do from answering someone's email at work to washing the dishes I exercise at least 30 minutes a day, typically an hour. Um, I have a Peloton, which is a stationary bike with a computer screen, and you pay $40 a month for a service so you can have access to classes um, mm. 24 it, it's, seven. It's been the easiest, quickest way that I can fit in the exercise every day. Um, On the weekends, I go on long hours, long bike rides through the hills near my home. Mm. Um, Not only for the exercise, I love cycling, but also to enjoy nature. Um, It's been shown, studies have shown that um, spending time in nature is a natural antidepressant. Mm -hmm. Um, I read and meditate on Al-Anon literature before I go to sleep. I rely on the courage to change and one day at a time, daily readers that have, um, really Mm -hmm. inspirational, um, readings and things that I can ponder. And, um, most importantly, forgive myself for any mistakes I may have done. Um, again, Mm -hmm. undoing that perfectionism, um, has it, it, its daily work and I'm just the much more joyful and grateful for it
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah I love the the intentionality of, of your self-care I think uh, you know that seems to be the key for so many of us just to really uh, Yeah, make sure that's happening every day. So we have one more question for you today. And this is a question we like to ask of our guests who are experts by experience like you. Mm -hmm. So for anyone listening out there who might have a family member struggling with alcohol abuse, uh, what might you say to them? Is there something that you wish you had known earlier in this journey?
2: Yes, the three Cs. I didn't cause it. I can't control it and I can't cure it. Um, Hmm. Earlier this year, a sister who was a year younger than me and who I was incredibly close to growing up, died of liver cirrhosis at the age of 42. Um, She'd been drinking since middle school. And um, what this experience has taught me is that one, alcoholism is a disease that you can't control or cure any more than cancer or any other genetic and terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And two, perhaps the most difficult lesson of all is that I didn't cause it. A lot of my own 12-step work has been overcoming the guilt and the shame that I could have done more or what I would have done differently in the past. And none of this is true. Now, when I come across a difficult situation that involves me controlling another person's actions or their disease, I immediately default to the Al-Anon slogan, let go, let God.
0: Mm. Yeah. Alisa, I really, I appreciate um, you sharing all of that. Uh, you know, I'm so sorry for the loss of your sister. Um, yeah. And, you know, that that I appreciate that you're able to share that with us and, and with the world. Um, I have to say that before the loss of your sister, I I had no idea that liver cirrhosis could affect someone so young. So it's... Mm. Obviously, um very important information for people to hear. Um, and I wanted to take a moment and repeat the three C's because I think this is huge um for anyone who has someone close to them struggling with addiction. I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. So I'm gonna pause Lisa. I don't know if you want to respond before we close out the um the episode or if there's anything we didn't ask that you want to add in here.
2: No, I um appreciate uh, y'all having me on and honoring my sister in this way. I feel that I mm-hmm. honor her every time I focus on my own self-care and and share what I've learned with her her niece and her nephew and um in my work moving forward, I just have so much more compassion for mm-hmm for others, mm-hmm. and most importantly, for myself.
0: Yeah. 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 So so thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today and your willingness to be vulnerable with us. You know, it's not easy. Um, and for everybody out there who's who's hearing it, who's that you're being vulnerable with, right? Um, and on a personal note, I just wanted to say it's um, great to reconnect with you after all these years, um, and especially over a topic that uh, we're both so passionate about.
2: Same here. I'm so thrilled that, that you both are running this podcast. Thank you for reaching out to me, Serena.
0: Great yeah. to
2: reconnect.
1: Well, we are super excited. And I personally, because I didn't know you in London, Dairy, <laughs> uh, am lucky to have met you. And uh thank you so much for joining us today and again sharing so openly about your personal family struggles. I think this is how we normalize, right? So thanks for all you are doing. Thank you, Tina. So podcast friends, we are, as always grateful for all of you listening and supporting us. You can help us out by visiting Apple podcasts, leaving us a review, subscribing, and please share with others. You will find more content on our website. No need to explain podcast.com. You will also find an email address and we would love for, you know, to hear from you by email.
0: And this is your gentle reminder to take good care of yourself while you are also taking care of your people.
1: Thanks again for listening. Bye.